Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Let me ask you something that is perhaps a little bit personal. How are you sleeping right now? Are you getting enough? Um, Is it broken or are you sleeping a little bit like a log? Are you waking up feeling rested or are you waking up feeling just as tired as when you went to sleep? And why does it all matter? So today's conversation is with Paul Taylor, who's a former British Royal Navy Aircrew officer. He is an exercise physiologist, nutritionist, and neuroscientist who is currently completing a PhD in applied psychology. He has a proven track record in leadership and dealing in high-pressure situations through his former roles um, as airborne anti-submarine warfare officer and a helicopter search and rescue crew member with the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm, tongue twisters. Uh, He's undergone rigorous military combat survival and resistance to interrogation training and in 2012 became a professional boxer. So he's uh, no slacker by the looks of it. Um, And so today he's going to share with us why leaders need sleep and how to optimize it. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. I'm so glad to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure to be on. Yes, and apologies for that bio. It is a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? There's a lot to wrap your tongue around. You have done a lot in your career. The devil makes work for idle hands has always been my approach. So I need to keep busy to keep myself out of mischief. Which which leads me to ask, how well do you sleep? Uh, I, I sleep. Um, really well, particularly um, in the last number of weeks because I got my hip resurfaced. Uh, so I've had a dodgy hip for the last number of years, which has impacted upon my sleep. And I got a resurfacing and uh, I sleep through the night now, which is awesome. Uh, okay. So straight away, mum of three children, first yes. child didn't sleep for the first four years. Yeah. Tell us what disrupted sleep does for people. And particularly for those of us who have those children with uh, sleep issues themselves. Um, mm. what, does, what does that do over a sustained period? Yeah. And, and look, I've got a couple of kids as well. So it, it's um, unfortunately, <laughs> this is, this is not, not good news. Right. <laughs> um, and please don't shoot the messenger. Um, we, we know, so, so there's a couple of things. One is chronically and then acutely. So let, let's take it chronically. Okay. So um, we know that, that chronic levels of poor sleep dramatically increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, anxiety, depression, um, impact upon cognitive performance, significantly increase the risk of a number of cancers. And for the blokes who are listening, um, make your ball shrink. I kid you no not. No one wants that. <laughs> measurable changes in the size of your testes <clears throat> from poor sleep. And you get testosterone that resembles that of somebody who's 10 years older than you. And, and part of the reason is that I was just sharing a paper with you before we come on uh, that's just been released quite recently, looking at the impact of poor sleep on the immune system 
and how it wreaks havoc on the immune system um, and in the brain as well, uh, actually releases inflammatory chemicals in the brain. And, and really interesting when we talk about the brain, um, for, for years and years, decades actually, um, neuroscientists were, were quite perplexed because the brain does not have a lymphatic system. Right. So for the, for those who are not familiar with it, the lymphatic system throughout your body is the way that you get rid of cellular waste products. So every day, just by being alive, by breathing um, that what we call cellular metabolism creates metabolic waste, um, which gets dumped out into your lymphatic system, taken through the liver and the kidneys and excreted. Right. But the brain doesn't have that mechanism. So neuroscientists were like, well, how, how the hell does it get rid of toxin? Because the brain has got brain cells that go through normal cellular re respiration and metabolism. And then some genius about, I think it was seven or eight years ago, um, injected a radioactive tracer in, in, into someone's brain and found out that when we're asleep, your brain cells basically shrink and they dump all of their metabolic waste into what's called the extracellular matrix. And it then gets its way to the outside of your cardiovascular system, right? So if you think then in our cardiovascular system, um, arteries, um, uh, capillaries, all and veins obviously carries the blood, but in the brain, this is a two-way highway. And um, so the blood is traveled inside, but on the outside at night. And um, basically that's a super highway where all of the waste gets dumped and, and runs down through the blood brain barrier and goes into the nearest lymph node and, and deposits it. And that's why we see the brain of sleep deprived people actually resemble that of people who are much older or for older adults resembles that of somebody with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So there's like the equivalent of all these fairies and elves doing stuff while we're sleeping. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that this is only a tip of the iceberg, but when, when you're asleep, you've, you've got it, the master clock in your brain and that's, it's just kind of above and behind the eyes called the superchiasmatic nucleus. If anybody's really that interested, but it, um, at night will switch on a whole host of bodily repair mechanisms, right? So the, the body basically takes advantage of the fact that you're asleep, you're not digesting food, you're not doing, you're not using a lot of energy. So it says, okay, it's time to repair. So your cardiovascular system repairs itself. But another thing that repairs itself is something called DNA repair enzymes. So these are little enzymes that run all the way through your body looking for cancerous and precancerous cells, right? And when they find them, they tag them. And then these natural killer cells come along and execute them. Pretty cool stuff, right? Perfect. But we know that if we have impaired sleep, that that process doesn't work very well. And, and that gets to later, we're going to talk about some of the sleep hygiene practices mm -hmm. And um, particularly around nutrition mm. and, and when you eat your last food before you go to bed, ah. that's pretty important. Yes. So, so you talk about chronic problems. Is there, and I, I want to come to acute in a second, yes. but where's, is there the opportunity to reverse it? So if you haven't been sleeping well and you find ways to do that, yeah. does it reverse itself? Does it improve and repair? So, so the, the, look, there's no doubt it'll improve and repair just how much 
of that improving and repairing, we don't really know because uh, if you think about it, you'd have to, um, uh, doing that trial is going to be pretty difficult, right? Um, um, for the, for all of the brain imaging and stuff like that, but but there's definitely evidence that you can um, re- improve your health um, by improving your sleep, right? Yeah. Like, like how much, you know, how, how, how much brain damage you've accumulated with these waste products. We don't know where's the point in where it's reversible, but certainly in terms of your risk of overall disease profile, you will improve it significantly mm. um, if, if you um, do something about your sleep, right? And, and I, I was actually reading another research paper yesterday um, adults who have chronic sleep problems are have got one and a half times the risk of, of being obese than people who have normal sleep, right? Uh, that's 150% increased risk. Um, that's significant. Obesity. Yeah. And, and, you know, even a few nights bad sleep, and people can do this. You can just go out and buy a $50 blood glucose monitor and sleep normally, get up, t- test your fasting glucose, and then, you know, have a few nights where you've got really shocking sleep and your blood glucose will go through the roof, even after a couple of days. Um, yes, I will attest to that. I am, I'm definitely a sensitive person when it comes to uh, quantity and quality of sleep. So mm. um, I don't even need a test. I know. Uh, and, you know, the work that I do, I'm sure the work that you do is, you know, when you're not sharp, you know, when you're not yeah. on um, and the things that impact that and sleep is so, so important. So yeah, absolutely. Tell us about acute. So acutely, if you've had a bad night's sleep, you're a grumpy bugger. Yeah. Next day, right. And, and everybody gets it, but that's because of the impact on your stress response systems. So cortisol, the major stress hormone will be higher after a bad night's sleep, right? So that it, is that because the brain can't get rid of that is that the same kind of concept? No, no, no. It's a, it, it's a different process. It interferes with your your cortisol rhythm, and um, so cortisol has a, like a diurnal rhythm. It normally peaks in the morning and then it's sort of trough in the evening, but it just gives it an extra spike. We we don't really know why that would be, but that is impacted. As is your endocrine system, so your hormones. So we know. Uh, I'll just pick two: um, leptin and ghrelin. So ghrelin basically is um, um, drives hunger in the brain. So after a bad night's sleep, you've got higher levels of ghrelin. That means that you crave more food. And because cortisol is higher, in cor- cortisol will make you crave sugary, fatty, and salty food, right? So I, I tend to think if we take a step back, I tend to think your stress response system, two different parts, fight or flight, um, three minutes of screaming terror on the African savannah when your ancestors are being chased by a lion. And then you have what's called the HPI axis that involves cortisol that's more prolonged or extreme stress. So think about famine. So what does cortisol do? It slows down your metabolism and makes you crave food, particularly food that's good for survival, Mm. sugar, fat, and salt. So you put those two together, bad night's sleep, my ghrelin is higher, I'm craving food. And because cortisol is higher, I'm wanting crappy food and it's available everywhere, right? Then the other thing, the other hormone that's affected is leptin, which um, has really powerful actions on the brain in terms of voluntary physical activity. So we know with with rats and mice, if you block leptin in the brain, they stop moving and they become obese, right? 
Um, and so with, when leptin is lower, you're much more likely to sit on your arse all day long. You're much less likely to do a workout then or exercise. Then you're less able to handle the stresses of the day's events because exercise is a great stress buster. Then you're going to come home after hard day's work. You're going to have very high levels of stress. And then your brain's going to say, I know how to sort this out get me a drink or get me chocolate or get me ice cream, right? And you, you are more likely to drink alcohol or eat crap food. And in both cases, you're going to impact on your sleep and it's Groundhog Day. The vicious cycle. And how vicious do you- Vicious cycle. How do you get off that? No, so- hold, no, no I'm finished. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> so as well as all of that stuff, your cognitive performance is significantly impaired. Right. So they did a number of studies. I don't know how they got um, um, ethical approval for these, but this was, I think it was UCLA, where they brought a bunch of people in. Um, some of them had normal sleep. Some of them, they suppressed their sleep to six hours and then five hours. Uh, and they did cognitive performance tests on them. And then some of the people that had normal sleep, they gave them alcohol. Right. And it turns out that the people who had six hours sleep, performed about the same on cognitive function tests as people who had seven hours sleep, but actually were blowing 0.05, right? So over the legal limit. And then the people who were had five hours sleep performed about the same as, as people who were legally drunk, right? And so on cognitive performance tests, and then they asked them, how do you think you went? And the piss people went, think I might have screwed up somewhere along the line, whereas the sleep-deprived people thought they did really well. So if you think about this, all around the country, in fact, all around every country, you've got people going into work thinking they're performing well and they're performing like pissed people, right, in terms of cognitive performance, right? Yeah. So, wow. so that's something that that is really, really impactful. So it has... This real that this the widespread ramifications throughout your body and your brain, and you know I mentioned earlier on the impact on blood glucose and all of this sort of stuff, mm. that that acutely has some significant issues on how much you eat, how much you move, your cognitive performance, and all of that. And, you know, if you're not performing well cognitively, you're less effective. You, then, you know, the workload builds up and you can yeah. see how this picture, right? I'm less effective. My workload's building up. I'm more stressed. I'm, I'm soothing my anxiety with alcohol or crap food. And then it's just groundhog day. And so do people and leaders in particular need a circuit breaker for that? Like, is that where it's like, I need a holiday? Is the holiday this... Yeah, a holiday can be a great circuit breaker, right? Because particularly when it gets to now, the, the, the amount of people I'm talking about are just going, you know what, I'm just done. I'm absolutely spent. And what you'll find is a lot of these people, um, as soon as the holidays start, they'll get sick, right? That is a big sign that you're running hard, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that you go on holiday and you get sick. And the reason is that, that um, when you're running hard, you're just releasing stress hormones, right? And your body's going, this is a dangerous situation. We can't rest, right? We've just got to push through, push through, push through, push through. Then you go on holiday and it's like, ah, now I can relax. And then it's like, boom, and it hits you with everything, right? So it will actually suppress all of this stuff, immune function. uh, And and when it then um, gets let loose, it drives inflammation, 
right? And the inflammation and, and a lot of these cytokines, these chemical messengers that are released um, by the liver, acute phase proteins, acute phase reactions, they make you feel crap. And it's basically, you know, if you have a virus, it's the same thing happens. These things are released. And it's basically your brain's way of saying, Shelly, um, go and lie down in your cave um, so that we can recover, right? If you've got a virus, it's not the virus that makes you feel crap. It's your body, your immune system detects it and then tells the liver to do something about it and make you go and lie down so that they can take all of their energy and fight this, okay. this invader. And that's kind of what's happening when we get sick on holidays. We're running hard because of all the stress, the immune system suppressed. Then we go on holidays and it just lets loose. And then that's why we get sick. And then that in itself might be the Kickstarter to go, I need to change some things in my life. I need to stop drinking. I need to maybe go to bed earlier or get yeah, up. That should be a big flag. And also the behaviors. You know, I, I talk about this whirlpool that I have, a vortex where it's dragging down. And if you're starting to notice, you know, we've all been at a kind of level one where we're just a little bit lack of focus, bit of multitasking, mindlessness, you know, everybody's been on that. But as it gets lower down the level, you start to self-neglect. And what I mean by that, you know, you should be exercising more, you know, your diet should be better, but it's just like, you know, I just need to get through this, right? Mm -hmm. Then at the next level, you can start to develop anxiety, depression, and, and, and you can really self-sabotage where you're engaging in behaviors, whether it's alcohol, drugs, um, or, or, or anything like that, that, that you know is impacting on your relationships, it's impacting on your work, but you can't do anything about it, right? You're being sucked into the vortex. And, and that's where you need to take really strong action because the next level is burnout, which we haven't even talked about yet, right? No. Anyway. Um, and so thinking about that really, like if, the, if we've got leaders that are going, uh, yeah, that, that's me, but I don't have any holidays coming up. Yeah. Um, what what action can they take? There's a whole heap of actions that they, they they can take, right? So I like to so I like to get people to think about themselves as athletes, executive athletes, and 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 how do athletes behave if they've been tra training hard or playing, doing a hard game, and then they got to back up the next day, right? So what do you think they do when they come home? They hydrate well, they eat well, they don't drink alcohol, they have really good sleep hygiene practice so that they can perform the next day, right? Uh, and the, you know, the world of athletics has, has, has really, um, I think it's leading the world of business by 10, 20 years. Um, you know, the, the, the world of athlete training has largely resolved, not, not fully, but largely the problems that individuals and businesses are still making in that to improve the performance, I just need to work harder and longer, right? Mm -hmm. And they've realized in the athlete world that drives overtraining syndrome, right? Now, uh, there is lots or a few really critical research papers showing the ridiculously strong links between um, overtraining syndrome and, and burnout. In fact, I have sitting on my desk, because this is video, here we go. Common features in overtrained athletes and individuals with professional burnout, right? 
implications for sports medicine practice. And I'll just, I'll just flick on. And, and I actually didn't know what we were talking about, right? These research papers are just sitting on my desk. And um, so I've, there's a table here of overtraining and burnout, right? And so overtraining, I'm going to read out some of them, if you're cool with this. Physical performance impairs in overtraining syndrome and athlete. Working capacity impairs in burnout. In the athlete, tiredness. Burnout tiredness, irritability in both things, sleep disturbances in both things, sensitivity to infections in overtraining syndrome, sick absences in burnout, cardiovascular changes in both cases, hormonal changes in the athletes, and that's inconclusive in burnout, and then activation of inflammations in, in athletes, inconclusive in burnout because we haven't done it. But what we also know about burnout is that there are significant structural and functional changes in the brain. And what I mean by that, from a structural perspective, the prefrontal cortex shrinks. And, and we know this from functional imaging, what's called longitudinal studies, where they follow people for a number of years, ask them about the amount of stress in their life and put them in a brain scanner, every six months and look at the volume in their brain and the connectivity and what they see is the prefrontal cortex shrinks and an area called the anterior cingulate cortex shrinks and the amygdala the part of the brain that senses and responds to stress grows bigger it actually hypertrophies just like your biceps will do if you're doing lots of training of your biceps right so it, that is a brain that becomes stress adapted what that means from a functional perspective, you got a less connected brain. And because the prefrontal cortex is shrinking, part of that um, actually regulates your emotion. So you have less ability to regulate your emotion. That's where people are flying off the handle. You know, they're, they're becoming more emotional and yeah. stuff like that. And then you're making emotional decisions rather than rational decisions. And the whole thing compounds, right? And so in the... This is a joyous podcast, isn't it? I, I love it. I'm thinking about the work that I'm doing with leaders, this huge focus on emotional intelligence, about connecting, about noticing you know, how are you feeling and how does that, mm. what does that mean to how you're showing up for your people, which is then, you know, what kind of environment are you creating for them to learn and grow, et cetera. And what you're talking about just is just beautiful. In yeah, and, 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 yeah, yeah. So we'll come in, we'll do an emotional intelligence training on you with a brain that is not regulating <laughs> your emotions well, right? Which is why it should be done as part of a retreat. Totally, totally. <laughs> we, need, we, need to, we need to get the recovery right first. Yes. We need to get the repair right first. Then we need to do the emotional intelligence training on a receptive brain that yes. can adapt. Yes. Okay. Wow. That's, that's really fascinating for, for organizations that are looking at, you know, how do we improve the, the way that leaders lead their people mm -hmm. and encourage them and influence them to be their best, provide the right environment. We can't necessarily reduce the stresses as such um, because of the environment. It's ambiguous, it's volatile, all of those kind of things. Uh, but something as simple as, well, why don't we start with the sleep, with your quality of sleep and how, how, how you're managing that. Yeah. Um, and, and look at it, it becomes, it's a chicken and egg as well, right? Because a lot of people, there'll be so many listeners and leaders that I've talked to and you've talked to who are working 60 hour weeks, sometimes 70 hour weeks. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and part of that, and 
you know, a lot of large organizations, and you know, this is where we get into a philosophical um, debate, is, is about returning value to the shareholder. So it's all about profit and people are expendable. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, I think those organizations really need to examine themselves and examine their priorities um, I, because people aren't expendable and you cannot expect it is just ridiculous to expect people to be working 60, 70 hour weeks. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they don't realize that the cost of this, like if, if somebody goes on stress leave with burnout, they're not gone for two weeks. They're gone for six months, a year, two years. Sometimes they never come back. Yeah. So think about all of those replacement costs and all of that stuff. You know, fiscally, it really does add up. You just need to give people the resources that they need to do their jobs mm. rather than this unrelenting focus on running harder, more profit, you know, more with less because it's completely unsustainable and it's completely unethical. But that's that's another conversation. I, I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, the, the focus um, outside of, you know, emotional intelligence and connecting with people is about effectiveness. And, mm. you know, it's not necessarily about, productivity it's about well, what are you actually spending your time doing and is that moving us forward so many leaders are focusing on things that they don't need to and they're worried about things that they don't need to worry about which yeah. i'm sure impacts sleep as well so one of the things that i talk to leaders about is why are you worrying about that that's not your problem yeah yeah um, you know, why you... The, yeah this is where epictetus the stoic philosopher comes in and and the two zones in your life right and we, we've got to focus on the stuff that's within our control yeah. and refuse to invest our energy in the stuff that's not in our control yeah that's right so if i think about what's within my control one of the things and i remember reading this book um called fit for life and i read it in andrew may is that i can't even remember the name i read it in for in, life in the year 2000 i think it was i think it came out in the even maybe the early 90s or late 80s but it was this book that um, had this whole concept of eating and getting more energy back Um, Mm. and i remember reading it and i followed a lot of the principles so one was don't eat anything but fruit before midday and um, don't eat um, carbs with meat um, and and those kind of things but the thing that stuck with me was don't eat after eight o'clock at night. And yeah. there is one rule that I've applied and it is very rare. I'm not going to say that I never do it. Um, it is very rare that I'll eat after eight o'clock at night. And, and gosh, that makes a difference to my sleep. It, it, it makes a huge difference. People don't realize um, the impact that it has upon your sleep. Uh, and not only the impact upon your sleep, but the impact on cancer risk. Oh, right? Tell us. So what happens is, is at night, um, that, circadian, um, that, that circadian clock in your brain, one of the things that'll switch on is those DNA repair enzymes, right? Where these, all these little enzymes run through your body looking for cancerous and precancerous cells, mm-hmm. tag them, and then these other ones come and, and execute them. If you eat late at night, you have a peripheral clock in your liver and your pancreas that switches on and overrides the master clock. So switches off the DNA repair enzymes. And, and there was a, a pretty seminal paper released a number of years ago that showed that, that females who fast for 13 hours uh, overnight had, had a 36% risk reduction for breast cancer, right? And all the animal studies show that if you extend the eating window of an animal outside of 12 hours, cancer risk goes through the roof, right? Wow. So it's that our metabolism needs needs this break 
in order to repair itself. And most people go, yeah, I eat eat it at o'clock at night. I'm done. Yeah, you're done eating. You're not done digesting. The process of digesting lasts for hours and hours, right? Up to five, six hours. And, And so it's when that digestion is over that we're doing a lot of that repair. So if you're eating late at night, you're not getting that repair. And it also impacts on sleep quality because your digestive system, it's very expensive to run metabolically. Right. So uh, uh, that, that is absolutely a rule. In fact, um, Sachin Panda, who's the world leader in this area, his recommendation is to not eat past 7 p.m. Right. But eight o'clock, worst case scenario. Now, I, here's the other thing. Uh, and this is what trips me up. I'm Irish. I'm ex-military. I like a tipple. Um, so there are a few nights a week that I'll have, have a drink. But I know that that's not great for my metabolism and my DNA repair. Right. Um, so that so that's why I, I have three or four alcohol free days mm. and, and make sure there's nil by mouth other than water. Not not like even having a herbal tea and um, that is enough to upset this system. So really? nil by mouth other than water. Yeah. After Sa- after eight o'clock. After, that's a after seven, eight o'clock. Yeah. And Sachin Panda's done a big global study. Actually, your listeners can jump on. It's called My Circadian Clock. And you can go on. So all these people around the world, they're taking photos of when they go to sleep and self-reporting on their sleep quality. And he says just massive reports of sleep quality improving when people um, reduce that time. And then some people go, how am I going to get through the night? Right. And I was one of those people. I was a late night snacker. And I read this research and I thought, bloody hell, you know, I, I need to I need to just give this a go. So I thought I'm not going to eat tonight. And I ran an experiment. I didn't eat. And I woke up in the morning and I wasn't dead. I'm like, who knew? Right. And then I was like, you know what? You're not hungry at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. It's bullshit. It's appetite. That's all it is. It's habit and it's appetite. Because then I remembered back to combat survival and resistance to interrogation training where the only thing they gave us in 10 days was a chicken between four people that was alive when we got it, right? So for those 10 days, we didn't eat anything other than a quarter of a chicken. And in fact, and some people go, oh, but fasting's not good for you. You know, my naturopath told me or my doctor told me you shouldn't be fasting. You know the world record fast? 382 days. Wow by a Scottish guy in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s. I've actually got the research paper, which I'll send to you. He was about 200 kilos. He went into his doctor and he said, Doc, I think I need to do something about my weight. I'm just going to stop eating for a while. Will you supervise me? And he supervised him and he didn't eat for 382 days. So we we can get through people. I think we can get through a few hours and not. I love that. I'm going to share that with my children. (laughs) Yes. Yes. indeed. (laughs) Who tell me that they're starving to death. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, how fabulous. So, um, and I love the, the concept around alcohol. I, um, Chris Bailey in his book, Hyperfocus says that, uh, alcohol still steals time from the next day. It does. Um, Yeah. I love it. It's just such a good concept. And, and, and I like that. And I've got this little, I, I have a rule that my wife is continually surprised about. So I drink alcohol and sometimes I give it a nudge, right? Like, like everybody does. And it, but it doesn't matter how much of a nudge it is. I get up at six o'clock in the morning. I do a super high intensity workout. Doesn't matter how bad I am to get the badness out so that the next day is not impacted. So Chico rolls and potato cakes is not the answer. That's not that. That, that, that is, the, the, I tell you, that, that is the soft individual's way out. I tell you, it, does, it, it definitely do does not 
feel like that throughout the day after you've eaten it. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But the other interesting thing about alcohol, and, and you know, we'll get into some of the sleep hygiene stuff, is that what, what sleep researchers now think is, is the, the importance of REM sleep for our mental health. So there's two types of, of, of sleep. There's non-REM and REM. And in, in non-REM, we have deep sleep, which is really important for our physiologic repair. And most people understand that. But then REM, rapid eye movement, where you're dreaming, this is the only time in your life that the brain blocks noradrenaline or norepinephrine, right? That is the stress hormone in the brain. So it's the sister chemical of adrenaline. It's released in the brain by the locus coeruleus, um, and, and, and it's basically a stress hormone. But so what happens is when you're dreaming, there's a tremendous amount of activity between your frontal and your temporal lobes. And, and what researchers think is that your, your brain is running through the day's events and deciding what's important to store right? And emotional memories are stored. They have more importance and placed upon them, right? Um, but it reviews those memories in the absence of stress. So it actually restores those memories and it reconsolidates the memories. A lot of people think you've got books behind you. I've got books behind me. A lot of people think is when you um, recall something, you reach out and you lift the book of a particular memory and you read it and then you put it back. What we now know is you reach out, you read it, and then you rewrite parts of it depending on your emotional state at the time. So when you're dreaming about it in the absence of stress, it's storing that memory with less emotional valence, as we as we call it, right? Wow. Now, sometimes we can, if we're really stressed, and um, that 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 shutting off becomes inefficient and it leaks out, and that's why you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, right? You don't people don't wake up at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning thinking about their best holiday ever, do they? Right? It's because that block hasn't worked and and then the, uh, all that noradrenaline is released and that's creating a stress response that's saying shelly what the hell are you doing asleep we've got to deal with this challenge and it wakes you up it was a question i was going to ask because there has been a couple of times over the last month where i have woken up at 205 mm -hmm. uh, i don't know why it's that time exactly um but this, the same thing. And I think I have about 30 seconds to, to do a little bit of mindfulness and get back to sleep. Otherwise I'm awake. Yeah. And you got it. And that's where the breathing comes in, right? Which is another important sleep hygiene thing is, is, is making sure that you are winding down mm. your, what's called your vagal tone, that balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic mm. and, and breath work is a really powerful way to do this. Like it's only taken our scientists about 3000 years to catch up with the knowledge of yogis that <laughs> certain types of breath work affect your heart and your brain. Right. Yeah. And I like either box breathing and um, where you just breathe like the sides of a box for yep. four or five seconds for each side or um, um, the resonant frequency breathing where you're breathing um, look at that kind of a hack for most people or for everybody about six breaths a minute is really, really good. Right. But the breath out has to be longer than the breath in. So just spend a couple of minutes with a 10 second breath cycle, breathing in for four out for six. Or another technique is your lowest comfortable breathing rate, like how mm. slow 
can you breathe, right? Breathe in really slow and then breathe out super, super slow. Because when we breathe in, it, 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 it um, temporarily activates our um, sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight. And when we breathe out, it switches over to parasympathetic dominance. So the longer breath out is really, really important, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that I say to people, you know, 30 minutes before you go to bed um, is turn off all devices and, and actually decompress by either, if you're into meditation, do your thing or um, uh, do some yoga, do some stretching, do some breath work, or just read a bloody novel. Because when you read, particularly a novel, your brain has to go on a journey and create all these characters and weave mm. this narrative. And it's a mindful activity, actually. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really effective. And, and, and the worst thing that you can do just before you go to bed is cognitively stimulating activities coupled with blue light. Right. So the blue light from a screen, whether it's a television, a laptop, a mobile phone, and that blue light blocks melatonin, the sleep mm -hmm. hormone. Right. So but particularly research come out just in the last couple of years, it's cognitively stimulating activities in the presence of blue light that is a disaster for your sleep. So think about teenagers who bring in a device into the bed. I, I, I am. I'm um, very, very forthright on this. Mm. For me, letting your teenager bring a device into their bedroom is tantamount to child abuse. We know that teenagers who bring a device into their bedroom sleep on average one to one and a half hours less than their peers, and they have doubled the risk of mental health issues, right? So now try telling, if you've got a teenager, try telling your teenager they're not allowed a device in their bedroom if you've got a device in your bedroom and see how that shit goes down, right? Right. And so the same can be said for adults. as Absolutely. Kids. Yeah. yeah. Well, our, our brains are no different, right? Yeah. We still respond to that. So. So I, I love, I love the idea of um, no screen time and that's some advice has been given to me recently as well. And even was given to me with a book um, around Island with a fridge, which is a really interesting. Oh, um, that's brilliant. That guy a, is bonkers. It's a fabulous book. It takes no cognitive load. It's, it's just a, it's just a fabulous He's dream. mad as a box of frogs <laughs> and the, the Irish loved them, right? Hitchhiking around Ireland with a fridge, just, just for shits and giggles. Yeah. So if anyone needs a swap for their screen and a, and a book, that's a really, um, a really good one. Um, so, you know, it makes sense to, to get everything out of your room. But one of the questions that um, maybe some of our listeners, certainly me has, is there's some discussion or debate around how many hours you actually need per night yeah. um yeah and obviously quality is really important but what's yes. the minimum you know can you get by on six hours sleep a night every night or Look, uh, so, so there's big debate about this and and even among sleep psychologists there's still debate uh, uh, the, the good rule of thumb generally is for most people it's seven to nine hours right now as we get older we need a little bit less mm -hmm. now we think now that we need less actually just because our brain becomes less efficient at, at clearing stuff out right and and it's the need to clear stuff out 
that drives the sleep. So it's not actually a good thing that we need less. It's just that we're getting older and the molecular machinery isn't working as well, right? So if we slept longer, could we live longer? Yeah, quite potentially, right? <laughs> uh, and certainly in terms of brain health, um, yeah. we, we need to be, be to be sleeping longer, right? Um, and now there are a, a very small percentage of the population whose brains are a little bit like dolphins in that when one part is a one part can can rest while the other one is active right but that is that 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 that's really quite rare and um, there are people that can function you can train yourself to function like maggie thatcher quite quite famously got by on four hours a night but she got alzheimer's pretty early right this is the thing um yes you may be able to do it and you may be able to function but at what cost? Because we know that that is when brain repair is happening. That is when the molecular byproducts, the waste products of the, of the day, which are unavoidable, and that is when the cleaning happens through this glymphatic system in the brain. Right? Mm. So yes, people can convince themselves all they want that they will function well. And you may well function well um, on, on six hours a night because you've trained yourself to do it. But uh, I, if I was a betting man, I would be saying that is having a negative impact um, upon your brain. Now, here's a little aside. And, and certainly acutely, I wouldn't be encouraging people to do this um, to make up for lack of sleep. But creatine, which creatine monohydrate, which is a pretty famous sports su um, supplement. It's one of the most efficacious, most proven um, supplements for sports performance. It improves muscle performance, power, speed, and those sorts of things. Also improves brain health mm. um, because it turns out that creatine is an important metabolite for the brain. And that particularly if you're sleep deprived, taking five milligrams of or five grams of creatine in the morning um, can actually attenuate the decline in cognitive performance. Interesting. Right? So that's a little, uh, and that's much better than waking up tired and reaching for caffeine, right? Creatine over caffeine, love it. Cre creatine over caffeine. And, and, you know, that's the next thing about sleep hygiene. And again, a big debate. Um, and I'm not anti-caffeine. I don't drink coffee just because I don't like it taste. I drink, I drink tea. I drink Earl Grey tea and I drink a lot of it, but I drink it weak because I know that the caffeine in it, it's a, it's a, it's a stimulant. It's a brain stimulant. They give it to fighter pilots in war to keep them awake, right? There should be the bloody clue. <laughs> now, people say, oh, but I finished my caffeine at four o'clock. Caffeine has a half-life of six hours. So that means that six hours after your cup of coffee and for an average person, it's about six hours. Now, some people are fast metabolizers, some are slow metabolizers, but we're talking on average six hours. So you take 80 milligrams of coffee first thing in the morning, six hours later, you got 40 milligrams, 12 hours later, you still get 20 milligrams in your system. Then a couple of hours later, you have another cup of coffee, right? So you got to add that up and people can do the maths. And, and I often do this in corporate workshops. Then you're having another cup of coffee at 12 o'clock. Then you have another one at two o'clock, right? People who are having four exposures of caffeine um, or more, and, and by the way, it's not just coffee, tea, um, uh, um, energy drinks, um, diet drinks. They all have bloody caffeine in them, right? And um, chocolate, all of those things have got caffeine in them. If you're having four or more exposures a day, you have got caffeine in your brain at stimulant levels 24-7, 365 days a year. 
and people wonder why they have problems with sleep. Now, there are some listeners who are shouting at the screen right now going, I can have an espresso and go straight to sleep, right? And they tend to be really smarmy when they say it. <laughs> what we know about those people, yes, they are, they are fast processors. They have become tolerant to caffeine, but we know that even though they get to sleep, their ability to get into deep sleep is impaired. So their quality, to your point earlier on, their quality of sleep is not good. Then they wake up in the morning that the cortisol is not doing the job of waking them up. So they need caffeine. And then when you take caffeine in the morning, it competes with cortisol for um, docking on the adenosine receptor, then cortisol does not do it well. And what we know is that can shift the cortisol rhythm and the natural biological rhythm that becomes a dysfunctional cortisol um, pattern. Wow. Wow. So if uh, you haven't just scared everyone into um, not drink, not having caffeine in their diet, yes. I'd be uh, interested to know. Um, that's that's really um, confronting information. It, it, I think about a, most Particularly in Melbourne, right? Um, I'm well, not popular. And again, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just no, but, a bloody messenger. So, so you know, one one coffee at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Not a problem. Not a problem. Not a problem. So, and, and, and here's yeah. the thing about coffee, right? So some people get up in the morning and love their coffee. And this is quite recent research. Get out into early morning sunlight mm. just for a few minutes before you have caffeine, right? Oh. You want, it's the early morning light that we now realize and the evening light, you know, the yellowy rays when the sun is rising and setting, that is the light that entrains your circadian rhythms. Love that. Right? That's brilliant. So, and, and try to get out into sunlight. You only need, if it's a bright morning, two minutes is enough. If it's, if it's a bit gray, you need to be out there for 10 minutes. So try to get out before you have your caffeine so that you have natural things that, that are resetting these bio, these really critical biological rhythms. Because, you, you know, if you mess with your circadian rhythms, you're ghost. You, you're really going to struggle to get to sleep, right? Um, so that that's a little tip. And, 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 and that circadian rhythm that leads us into another sleep hygiene practice, which is go to bed as close to the same time every night. Mm. And even more important is getting up at the same time every morning, right? And, and again, even on weekends, don't shoot the messenger, right? And because you think about it, if you're changing your sleep and your wake time, you're messing with the, this, this circadian 24-hour rhythm yeah. and you're going to really struggle to get good sleep. Now, now, some people can just sleep on a chicken's knee, right? They can mm -hmm. sleep at the drop of a hat and, that, and that's fine. But for, for people who, who, who would like to have better sleep or more energy, all of these things that I'm talking about are, are, are really, really important. And, and just, I say to people, do a 10-day experiment. And, and just see if your sleep improves. Because I guarantee it will. You do all this stuff. In, and if it doesn't, you can troll me on social media. <laughs> I love it, Paul. I love our conversation. I think I can talk for hours on this. I was a, a little bit um, curious about when we came into the conversation, whether we could actually have a full conversation just on sleep. But actually, I think we could probably have five conversations yeah. just around sleep. It is huge. Um, so important. I, I love sleep. I'm a huge advocate for it. Probably don't get enough, but you've given some really practical, um, 
tips and ways to kind of help to get into that rhythm. And I think that's so important for all of us, mm. but particularly leaders. Um, for people can, I, that- can I just add one more? It's really yeah. important is oh, that, 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 that your brain needs to know that your bedroom is a sleep sanctuary, yes. right? It's not where you go to work. So it's not for television. So get the bloody TV out of the room. Don't bring the lap. Don't have arguments in the bedroom. Your brain needs to know this is a sleep sanctuary. It's where I go to sleep. And if I'm lucky, I get a bit of oofty magoofty every now and then. Right. But it's not for laptops. It's not for, for, for televisions. It's not for mobile phones. Right. So buy yourself a $10 alarm clock and get the bloody mobile phone out of the bedroom. Great. Love it. That is awesome. Our sleep sanctuary. Just keep it that way. Paul, if people want to know, if people want to learn more about it, how can they connect with you? How can they get more information around this? Yeah. So, so look, the best way, my podcast, the mind body brain project um, is, is my podcast. So jumping onto that, uh, my website is mindbodybrain.com.au. Nobody really understands me when I say brain in my Irish accent, (laughs) But um, those things are, are reach out to me on LinkedIn um, and I'll send you a link and you can put it in the show notes. So that, that they will. would be the best ways to find out more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for such a inspiring, insightful conversation um, that I think, yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are going to get some value out of. So thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. I look forward to another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks. Cool. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay cool.